So we are in a series during Lent as we prepare for Easter and we move through this traditional season in the church's calendar, and church's life, where we prepare, where we ask ourselves the hard questions of how may our lives have drifted from the vision of life that Jesus presented um, of the kingdom and how, how to actually participate in it. So our series during Lent is Life in the Kingdom of God, and we're trying to get as extremely practical as we can, um, considering the areas of our life that, that are inescapable and how does the kingdom of God relate to them. So talking about tensions and pain and how do you do friendship and how do we think about eating and th- this this morning we're going to talk about work and um, when I was thinking about this series and uh, us getting a, a vision of the kingdom of God for our work, um, a, a friend of mine, uh, Jason Losey, um, came to mind. I, I first uh, came in contact with Jason at uh, Q, uh, which is a conference that our church is in sort of conversation with, participation with. I first uh, saw Jason present at Q in Portland. And he was presenting on uh, the first book he wrote, which is called Veneer. Uh, and I heard them presenting on how do we understand our identity as the people of God, as sons and daughters of God in a culture uh, with the technology that we're all surrounded by, with the celebrity culture, with consumption being what it is. How do we understand our identity and these complex forces of our world? And I thought, man, that's a very intriguing uh, sort of uh, pr- presentation. And then uh, not too long after that, Jason became a neighbor uh, who lives just uh, a-, a few blocks down uh, in our neighborhood, started coming to our church, uh, since then has released his second book uh, in combination with uh, co-writer Tim Willard, uh, a book called Home Behind the Sun, exploring how the beauty and the sort of our imagination as people in the kingdom of God can seep into every part of our lives. Um, and since sort of just like coming in contact with his ideas, Jason has become a dear friend. Um, uh, we, we, our houses are equidistant from Dizzy's Diner, so we regularly frequent it. Um, and we sort of have an ongoing rivalry about who's more regular um, there. Uh, he's a person that I consult on, uh, on life, on, on parenting, on the culture of, of our church. Um, he has in the city built a phenomenal com- company called Five Stone uh, that helps other organizations live out their vision, design, branding, storytelling. Um, but most importantly, Jason has a phenomenal beard um, <laughs> with a, a wild color scheme that you need to get to see up close and personal. Um, but I'm really, really excited for you to hear from Jason this morning on the kingdom of God and our work. So I want to ask you as your pastor to be a kind and attentive listener and to laugh at any jokes that he may make. Um, so Amanda's going to come and read the teaching text and then please welcome Jason. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Genesis two fifteen nineteen through 20 The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gives name to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm setting my timer so I don't pull a Caleb, and (laughs) you guys can thank me for that later. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, yeah, so work. Ugh, like the most, the worst thing we could talk about on Sunday. The one day uh, we're supposed to be able to relax and have Sabbath and let it all go and not have to worry about it till tomorrow. We're going to talk about it for 35 minutes. <laughs> and so um, I'm here today not as a pastor or as a theologian or anything like that, but as Caleb said, I'm a practitioner. I work. And for 25 years, I've tried to wrestle with uh, how my faith might interact with my profession and whatever my job might be at the time and how those things might resolve one another. And what I think is cool about TGC is we have a lot of workers here. I've met all sorts of crazy people doing really interesting stuff. Uh, I've met artists and bakers and musicians and accountants and producers and uh, essential oil salespeople and, uh, <laughs> and you know... <laughs> yeah, the whole gamut, uh, the whole gamut uh, profession. And what I think is really interesting and what I think is really neat is that um, we're all struggling with and we're all wrestling with the same idea. And that idea is that we are disciples of Jesus and we are also professionals. And we, are, we have to, every day, we have to go into a workplace that may not look like the kingdom of God and we have to try to represent the kingdom of God in that place. And so today I want to talk through a couple of ideas. First, I want to talk through the idea that God calls us to work. And when we can understand work in that context, we can see that we're actually partnering with God and this gives our work meaning. The second thing I want to talk about is the idea that our our work can actually be rooted in a deep theology and understanding of the biblical narrative and how it might attach to our everyday context in our profession. And finally, I want to suggest that our work is a subversive force that can actually push back brokenness and allow the kingdom of God to seep into whatever we're doing. So for the next 30 minutes, I want to talk through those ideas, and um, I want to, my hope is that this will be an encouraging time, and it'll be a way in which uh, throughout the rest of your week, you can reflect on uh, your Christianity and your faith and your work. So I'm going to pray to get going, and then we'll, we'll kind of dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can come and we can take a respite from work, and we can have a place where our minds and our hearts and our bodies can renew for just a, for just a little bit of time. Thank you for the folks in this room. Thank you for the collective work that we all do. Um, And we pray that that you'll use the words of this time to to bring encouragement, that you'll use the words of this time to bring hope and energy and joy to something that can be laborious and toilsome like work. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So prior to moving to... uh, New York. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia for a while, and we moved there when we were, uh, when we were pregnant with our first son. And um, we had just sort of moved down there, and we were getting the house settled and um, getting things in order, and we're laying in bed one morning, and my wife kind of nudges me awake, and um, as pregnancies go, she, say, hey, she says, hey, it's time, you know, it's time, let's get, let's get going to the hospital. And so we jump out of bed and we start scurrying around and, uh, you know, we're freaking out and we're putting all our clothes in a bag and we hop in the car and we pulled, we, we back out of the driveway and um, then the radio's on and the news is on and we hear that a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And we're like, what in the world? This is crazy. You know, we have no idea what's happening. And so we're driving into downtown Atlanta and the speculation continues that there is a terrorist attack and uh, people have planes uh, that, have, that they're holding, uh, that they've hijacked and they're ramming them in to buildings. We walk into the hospital and we were checking in and behind the woman checking us in is a television and we watch the first uh, Trade Center drop. 
We go back and we're admitted and we're in the delivery room and in between contractions we watch what we think is the end of the world happening right in front of us. And at 4.28 p.m. on that day, our first son was born. (laughs) And so we have this crazy uh, confluence of events happening where we have, um, we have sort of national, um, national anguish and grief, yet we have hope in the, in the birth of our son. Two days later, I lost my job. So we got to add that to the mix of feelings and emotions. <laughs> Heather, and I, Heather and I are not what you might consider uh, savers or planners, and so this hit, <laughs> <laughs> this hit us as, as a bit of a surprise, and we were completely unprepared uh, for what that looked like. And so uh, here we are. Um, and, and like the rest of the, of the country and even the world, we're grieving, yet we're incredibly hopeful and we're incredibly happy, yet also we have no idea what we're going to do and how we're going to feed, feed this baby. Um, and like everyone else during that period of time, I, I entered into uh, a time of introspection. I began thinking about life and what it meant and my role in it, and because I didn't have a job, a lot of that thinking centered around work. Uh, when I grew up, the idea of work was pretty simple. My dad was a music major, uh, and he, he was a professor, and basically I could do anything but music, and it would be fine. And so, <laughs> and so I went to school, and um, he said, you know, just go to school and get a job, and, and that'll be great. And so that's what I did. I didn't give it much, I didn't give it much thought. But during those, during those moments of introspection, what I really realized was that my motivating factor for work was based on two uh, primary emotions, fear and control. I was afraid that I wouldn't have enough money, that I wouldn't have enough status. If I wouldn't have enough uh, success, I wouldn't be able to um, provide or save or do those things. I wouldn't be able to have a home. And then control. Um, I, wouldn't have a, I, would, I, I wanted to control my situation so that I could offset the fear. Control is sort of the anecdote of fear uh, sometimes. And what I realized was that when I chose my... Um, when I chose my work based on those emotions, I was living completely outside of uh, the expectations and hope and reality that God had laid before me. And I think that fear and control are antithetical to the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we hear stuff that sounds like this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you. I discovered a quote by a theologian named Klaus Bachmuel, and he says basically that God does not call us to success, but to obedience. And this profoundly impacted the way I began to view work. Uh, There's a beautiful book of poetry called Brown Girl Dreaming by uh, a poet and writer named Jacqueline Woodson, and it's her story of, uh, it's it's her biography basically in prose, over 280-some pages, and it's pretty fantastic. And she talks about uh, how she was living in Greenville, South Carolina, and moved to Brooklyn, and how oftentimes her southernness would uh, collide with her Brooklynness, and sometimes her Brooklynness would collide with her southernness. I totally get this, um, especially when you're trying to walk and do things that require speed, and you're just not used to it. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, what, she, what she makes the point of is that eventually those two worlds begin to collide, and at some point she recognizes that when there are many worlds, you can choose the one you walk into each day. And so I think the same is true with us. We actually live in two worlds. 
We are citizens and members of, of, of this world, of man's world, of man's economy and its structures and its context and its institutions, but we're also members of, of God's economy, of the kingdom of God, and we are citizens of that as well. And these two things butt into one another in really awkward and amazing and beautiful ways sometimes. And what we get to do on a daily basis is we get to decide which world we're going to enter into and which world we're going to try to participate and be a part of. And so here we are as workers entering into this world, entering into God's economy and man's economy, and we're trying to wrestle with and understand what that might mean. So I think there's three things that we could take away uh, or that we could think about in this context. And there's, these are the three that I picked. There's probably, you know, a thousand. <laughs> but I think these would be great to talk about today. And the first one is that in the kingdom, our work is calling. Uh, in the Christian context, words often get sort of uh, thrown out there, and maybe they're conflated, and maybe we think we know what they mean, but we don't know what they mean, or they're just so generalized that they no longer have meaning. So in a very boring way, I want to start with some vocabulary, <laughs> and I want to start by setting out a couple definitions. Uh, so first, calling. I've used it a couple times. What in the world am I talking about? Uh, calling is simply God calling us by name to follow. It's exactly what it sounds like. I might call to you, you might call to me. It's the same thing here. We are called as believers to follow God, and we do that through Christ. So when we talk about calling, we're simply talking about following God. The second term is vocation. Vocation is actually pretty synonymous with calling, uh, and it's inclusive of our whole life. Uh, Calling is an English-based word, and uh, vocation is a Latin-based word, vocatio, and it's it's simply our response to that calling. And it's in secondary, it sits secondary to the primary calling of following God. So our calling, our calling and our vocation line up, but our vocation is not to be confused with our job. Our vocation is something different. Our vocation is as citizens, it's as, it's as neighbors, it's as fathers, it's as mothers, it's as, um, it's as husbands, it's as boyfriend, as girlfriend, as students, whatever, the whole of our life, this is our vocation and this is our response to God. Inside that, of course, sits our work. Anything we do with our hands and our minds, paid or unpaid. Back to the teaching text for a second. God created humankind in his image. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the, fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living, every, every living thing that moves upon the earth. God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So we see that God is a worker and that we're created in God's image. And so therefore we are workers and actually God commands us to work, to subdue the earth, to to keep it and to do these things. And so anything we do with our hands uh, or our minds and living out our vacations, regardless of whether we get paid for it, is our work. Our job is the thing we actually get paid for. That's the thing that we do, our occupation. So we can have a scenario where our occupation is to say be a musician But life circumstance means we're delivering pizza or being a barista or whatever my dad was warning me against. Um, That doesn't release me of my vocation of being a musician, of writing and thinking in that way. No more than when I go to work every day, my vocation of being a father stops happening. I'm still a father at work. When I come home, I'm still running a design agency. My vocation doesn't go away. And so today I want to use the word work in a very particular way. So even though work is pretty all-encompassing of a lot of different things, I want to mean it uh, just to make it easier for a conversation. When I say the word work, I'm just simply talking about our primary responsibility and activity throughout the day. Whether you get paid for it or not, it's the thing you're doing from call it nine to five. Um, So 
Now that we have this language laid out, let's dig a little bit deeper into the framework. Um, back to the idea of calling. I mentioned before that our primary calling is in response to God. That's it. We're not called to live somewhere. We're not called to go uh, do something. We're called to follow God. That's it. Everything else falls underneath of that one thing. And so our vocation or our secondary calling is our whole of life in response to that. I want to steal from uh, author and professor Nigel Bigger uh, for one moment. He says, your vocation is to promote the healing of the world and serve the kingdom of God with your gifts. This is not to be confused with your particular job or career, wherever the province of God places you. So our entire life is in response to this call and everything that we do within it. Within that entire response, we find our work. We find our day-to-day responsibilities. And when we can think of it this way, we see that work becomes something different. It becomes something other. It's not just a way to uh, fund vacations or, or, or go to Dizzy's or get a boat or whatever that you do with your money. Uh, but instead, it's a way in which we can partner with God, just like uh, we saw in Genesis. And when we're called, we're working, um, we're working on a different context. Um, in man's economy, we are driven. And when we're driven, we're working for self. And we're working to advance uh, our success and our needs and our goals. But when we're called, we're working for others. And we're working in order to serve and to love. And this is the context then by which we work. Um, when we were in Georgia, we had a thing called a yard. It has like grass in it and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and so we had to deal with it. Uh, if you're thinking about moving, just remember that a yard is nice, but you actually have to take your whole Saturday and tend to it. Um, but... Uh, God has blessed us with four children, and part of that blessing is that they get to do some of the work for us, and we don't have to, we don't have to do it all. And so we had made this decision that the boys who were older, they were going to start helping out with the, with the yard work. And uh, Ethan, in particular, he was the oldest. He was in charge of mowing, and he absolutely hated it. I mean, it was just a struggle every single week to get him to mow the grass, and I remember one day we, were, we got done uh, mowing after a particularly difficult time of getting going. And we got all done and we're standing on the porch and we're drinking a glass of water. And it starts raining. But the sun's still out. And you know how when it does that, it's really beautiful and the rain kind of hits the fresh cut grass. And you can see the drops of water uh, sort of glistening in the sunlight. And I just looked at Ethan and I said, look, man, we, look at what we did. We cut the yard. Look how straight the lines are and the edge around the garden. Isn't this beautiful that we teamed up with God and we toiled our little plot of land? And he just looks at me and goes, whatever, can I play soccer now? (laughs) And yeah, it's whatever, but it's also whatever. Everything we do, the whatever of of our work is done in partnership with God. So in the mundane report running thing that you have to do on Fridays, all the way to the thing that shakes you out of bed in the morning, all of it. We're doing in partnership with God to bring healing to the world. And that gives us meaning in our work. And that's really exciting to me. Um, When we we think of it uh, in terms of TGC, we have a a tagline, if you will, here of joining God in renewal. Joining God in the renewal of all things. Is that happening just today in this hour? Sure. Is it happening just in your small group? Yeah, for sure. But it's also happening outside of that. It's happening in our entire vocations in response to God's call, and this means our work. We're joining with God in the renewal of all things at our work. And so uh, our work then has profound meaning as part of God's plans as we partner with him. 
My friend Steve Garber says it this way, vocation is integral, not incidental to the Missio Dei. The best best part of vocation is to love and serve with gladness and singleness of heart. When we take the wounds of the world into our hearts, not just for a day, but for life, we long to see the work of our hands as somehow strangely part of the work of God in the world. Vocation is integral, not incidental to the Missio Dei. So then we are called by God to follow him. Second to that, we live entirely for God. And in this calling, we see our work as partnership with God in the renewal of all things. And this gives our work meaning and it gives it purpose. So, that's, what we, that's our framing for work. And that's the framing for the rest of our conversation. Second, we find that in the kingdom, our work is rooted. Um, so we're all living basically in the middle of a big drama, in a big story. And it, it goes something like this. Uh, God created the, the earth, created the universe, and he, and he liked it. And he said it was good and beautiful, and it pleased him. Then Satan slithered onto the scene, and some stuff started happening called sin. And there was fallenness and brokenness. Then there was Israel, then Jesus hit the scene, then there was the church, and then there's final restoration and redemption that will come one day. And so most theologians would agree, obviously, that we're sometime between the the planting of the church and the end of, uh, and the new heavens and the new earth. And what's interesting is we don't really know how we're to act in this context. Uh, The Bible is an instruction manual necessarily for what to do to move us along inside of this story. So we find that we're living in this drama now, and we have have where we've been, and we know the punchline of where we're going, and we have to somehow make sense of what we're doing in the day today. And in the day-to-day, because of our understanding of work and of calling, we, we realize that we're actively participating with God in our work And we're using our talents. We're not just burying them in the ground, but we're using them to bring uh, healing to the world. But how do we do that? What does that look like? Uh, In this wonderful book called Colossians Remixed by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Keysmath, they offer this. Here we are with an unfinished script, at least some indication of the final act, and we have to improvise. If we are to faithfully live out the biblical drama, then we need to develop the imaginative skills necessary to improvise on this cosmic stage of creational redemption. Fantastic. So we have to improvise. Poet Peter uh, Riley calls this the exploration of occasion. We have to have imagination, or as George Bernard Shaw says, the beginning of creation. And what I think is as Christians in the workforce, we have fundamentally lost our ability to improvise and to use our imaginations. When we think about faith in the workplace, we oftentimes bring in church to work. So it's like, well, I guess we'll pray and we'll have a Bible study and that'll be awesome. Yeah, sure, that is fantastic. That's great. You should do that. But it is more than that. It is more than that. Um, And so then how do we get to a more improvisatory and imaginative view of the world? Well, we have to be rooted in something. We have to be rooted in a biblical understanding um, of our world, and we have to understand how our world works. So if you're a banker, you need to understand how banking works. You need to understand the history of banking, where it, where, where it started, where it is now, and where you think it's going to go, just like you need to have a biblical understanding. Uh, Wash and Keys, Matt, again, if Christian life is a matter of living in an unfinished drama, then the improvisatory discipleship to which we are called requires something of a double immersion. We must be immersed in the biblical story, that's our theology, and we must be immersed in the world, that might be called a cultural theology. Only through such a double immersion will we have any ability to discern faithful improvisations from missteps or dead ends. So we're active participants in the drama, and when we go to work, we're actively participating 
And we want to develop a theology around that. Theologian John Frame says it this way, what do God's norms direct us to believe? So if you're a photographer, what do God's norms direct you to believe about how you frame a subject? Do you shoot them from here, from here, or up at the top? And what does it say when you're doing that? Uh, If you're a photographer, what does it say about the context in which you put the subject that you're shooting? Is it an honest representation of who they are? Are you fabricating that scene in order to project something different? As an artist or a musician, what do God's norms direct you to believe about how you're representing brokenness? Is it strictly an honest reflection of humanity, or are you glorifying the profane? As an advertiser, what do God's norms direct you to believe about what you're advertising and where the advertisements hit and what they say and the emotions that they're tapping into and how the whole of the industry works? What do God's norms direct you to believe as a teacher? What, what do God's norms direct you to believe about the subject that you're teaching, about how you're teaching it, about the socioeconomic background of, this, of your students and the mix there and the racial diversity in your school? What do God's norms direct you to believe about the relationships you're forming with the students and the teachers? What do God's norms direct you to believe about every single thing that you do within your occupation and within your profession? When we can start attacking and getting at those questions, we realize that we have really interesting and beautiful ways of seeing our occupational and professional context. And when we do that, we, get the, we, we have the rootedness we need to navigate in these scenarios, and we have the rootedness we need to use that improvisatory imagination. When imp- improvisation happens in music, they've studied it, and they found that in order to be a good uh, improviser, you have to really understand Music. You have to know all of the rules. You have to know everything that's happening uh, within your profession. Otherwise, you'll get into it and you can't get out of it. You don't know how to end it and get back into the piece. And that's the same thing here. We need this basic understanding or this deep understanding of our work uh, and of our context so that we can then faithfully improvise. So what do God's norms direct us to believe? As we are called into our work, we must develop a theology of doing. This gives us a biblical rootedness to our work, allowing for proper improvisational and a hopeful imagination. So we've considered what it looks like to um, what it looks like to understand our work in a proper context of calling, and then we've suggested now that we need to uh, find a rootedness in our work and in our occupation that comes through a theology of uh, understanding. And now I want to suggest that the nuts and bolts of the work of our work is in a subversive. Mindset. Uh, are you guys familiar with the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei? He actually had a he had a show here in Brooklyn. It was pretty fantastic. If you missed it, that's probably online or something on Google. Um, but um, Ai Weiwei is actually uh, mostly an activist uh, through his art, and he he um, he speaks out against his government and uh, their economic policies and their human rights. Uh, condi- um, Policies and things of that nature. And of course, he takes, you know, this does not happen easy for him. He's been imprisoned, he's been in financial, uh, financially penalized, and all of these things. But what, uh, what he says is this if you don't push, then nothing's happening. And I think this is a lot like our work. When we show up every day, um, we're pushing against the effects of the fall, we're pushing against brokenness. And when we push against it and we can hold it at bay, we're allowing the kingdom to seep in. We're allowing, we're allowing beauty to creep in. And we're allowing light to fill an otherwise dark place. And so um, when I go to work, I, I, I imagine this in a very literal way. I imagine it in a very subversive context. Uh, we are working to overthrow, if you will, darkness. 
Um, now, I'm a product of the 90s, so this is really appealing to me, the idea that we can be radical and push back on something and you know, have our grunge and all those things. Um, and so this is, a really, this is a really unique sort of uh, offering to me, this idea that our work can be a way in which we push back on particular things. And so kingdom-minded work then begins to extend past um, the sort of entry-level things. I mentioned, you know, this idea that maybe we bring our cultural bag, our, our church uh, baggage and stuff into work, and so we, we oftentimes view it as prayer uh, or Bible studies. And it, of course, it is those things, but it is more. Um, we view it sometimes as just being honest and ethical and moral in our work and not lying to our boss. And it, and it is those things, of course, but it is more. And as we begin to develop this theology around our work, when we begin to develop this rootedness in our work, that's when things can start to creep in, and that's when things can start to get really interesting in how we view uh, what we're doing. And so what I would suggest is that within every industry and organization, there's something called a redemptive edge. You've probably heard this idea around here before. That within our work, we're looking for uh, where the beauty is, and we're trying to push towards those things. And so when we ask what do God's norms direct us to believe, that's so we know what direction we can point in. And when we're evaluating a situation or a question, when we're asking uh, what do God's norms direct us to believe, we're really asking how do we respond to and how do we handle a particular situation. So I, I imagine it really literally. I imagine a spectrum. And on one side of that spectrum is brokenness, and on the other side is beauty. (laughs) And when I'm making decisions in my day-to-day, I try to imagine how can I creep over as far as possible to the beauty side of this thing and get as far away from the brokenness as I can. And so I don't, know, I don't know what everyone does here, and I don't know how to make this particular, but I want to offer some, general, some general, generalizations uh, around what each side of this spectrum might look like so that you can start forming your own questions around this. So on the broken side, when we evaluate things, are we trying to extract as much value from others as possible in order to create personal gains? Uh, on the broken side of things, there's no concern for the greater good. There's a glorification of the profane. And we seek short-term gains over long-term health. So whatever we're doing on this, whenever we're making decisions and we're wrestling with things and it starts sounding like that and it starts creeping into that language, we know that we're, we know that we're hitting away from what God's norms direct us to believe. But on the other side of the spectrum, we see the opposite, obviously. We see, a, we see, place, we see a decisions that place more value into the world than it extracts. We're able to do things that um, create value for others in a way that is more powerful than what we're actually extracting. We see a context where the greater good is held higher than organizational gains. Get your head around that one for a moment in a business context. Um, We are celebrating, instead of glorifying the profane, we're instead celebrating a hopeful future. And we're sacrificing short-term success for long-term impact. So when we operate in a subversive mindset... We are analyzing every aspect of our work, the entire supply chain, if you will, from the product we're making to what goes in it, to what ingredients we're using, to who's making it, to how much we're paying them, to where they're located, to what their work conditions are, to what it is. Is it aesthetically pleasing or is it kitsch? Is it functional and beautiful all at the same time? We're evaluating how we're marketing and selling it. Where are those ads hitting? How, what is our price point on it? Is our margin super high or is it enough to feed people and be okay with it and allow people to enter into and buy something meaningful and worthwhile without? Uh, stripping them of their entire savings in order to purchase this thing. Uh, we're evaluating how we, how we run the budget around the work. We're evaluating how we tr- keep track of expenses and profits and losses. 
And we're evaluating even where our office is located. All of those things require our Christian intelligence in order to, uh, in order to thoughtfully engage with them. Now, um, I understand that most of us can't speak into the entirety of what we do. And so we have this idea that there's this great economy. There's, there's, this, there's God's economy. And underneath of that sense sits man's economy. And inside that economy sits the, sits the economy of your business. And inside that sits the economy of your cube or whatever you do. And it's the little piece that you have, that you have to quote unquote dominion over. It's the little piece of the work that you actually have that you can actually speak into. And so we're not talking about attacking the, the entire infrastructure of your place, of, or your professional place. We're talking about just pushing back where you can and when you can and where, appro- and where it's appropriate. And we're not doing this with the cynicism of a generation, but we're doing it with the imaginative, hopeful future of the kingdom of God. And we're offering people these imaginative uh, solutions to some pretty complex problems in order to point towards the beautiful edges of our work. And we have to do all of this, of course, within the institutions and the constructs of the places that we're working. If you are a business, you have to make a profit. Otherwise, you are not a business. You are something different. Um, But how much profit do you have to make? How much is too much? Um, Can you afford to take a best-selling item off of the shelf because you've realized that it's exploiting people halfway around the world? And can you be okay with that? If you're an advertiser, you have to convert people to buy something or you're an awful advertiser. (laughs) But what are, you, what are you trying to get them to buy? What are you tapping into? What emotions are you tapping into in order to get them to make that decision? Can we do it in different and new and meaningful ways? Now, good luck going to your boss on Monday and asking him, telling him, hey, or her, hey, guess what? We've got some awesome ideas. Now, profits are going to sink a little bit, and we're going to have less customers, but trust me, the world will be beautiful. <laughs> Um, if we did that, I don't know, what would the sermon be next, next week? Un- unemployed, in the, unemployed in the kingdom or something? <laughs> uh, so don't do that. I'm not suggesting that at all. I don't, I don't need that on me, please. Um, but what I, what, I am, what I am saying is if we start to develop that healthy imagination, we can begin to look at uh, conversations within our work, and we can begin to offer alternatives. So I don't know. We'll pick on advertising. Maybe there's nothing you can do about banner ads. They just exist, and they're going to totally screw up reading for the rest of our lives. And there's nothing we can do about it. But I don't know. Maybe you can have a conversation with your coworkers about it. Maybe you could say, hey, what if we threw a little money at a different method and see what happens? Just in that conversation, just in raising that question, you are, bringing, you are pushing your work closer to the redemptive edge of your industry. Just in having the conversation. And so um, when we're operating in a subversive mindset... We're already releasing this idea that there will be a 100% um, healing, a 100% hit on the beauty side of that, of that chart. Don't forget, we are operating in a now but not yet scenario. The kingdom of God is now, but it is also not yet. And so we operate honestly, but hopefully in what we can do. And we understand that some healing is better than no healing. And this is, this is based around an old idea called proximate justice. Proximate justice realizes that something is better than nothing. It allows us to make peace with some justice, with some mercy, all the while realizing that it will only be in the new heaven and the new earth that we will, fi- that we will find all of our longings finally fulfilled, that we will see all of God's demands finally met. 
It is only then and there where we see all the conditions for human flourishing finally in place. I think of a guy named Hans Hess when I think of this idea. He started a burger joint, of all things, uh, called Elevation Burger. And what he found was that, uh, no, no shocker here, but the meat production in America was the pits. And so he wanted to uh, come up with a way to have a fast food joint that was based on um, ethically produced, organic, grown, you know, grass-fed, whatever, beef, and French fries that were not, you know, fried in oil that's killing your heart. Um, And he wanted to do all of this, and he wanted to have a business, and he wanted to do it in a way that was affordable so people could enjoy it. So all of that thinking, going around that business, and you still go into Elevation Burger, and guess what you can get? A Coke. So... (laughs) So you can still slurp the thing down with high fructose corn syrup that's also killing you. Um, Sorry, vegetarian. (laughs) Um, uh, So, um, what we find though that is uh, in order to make the concept work, in order to make uh, a hamburger that was affordable to massive amounts of people, there had to be some sort of compromise, some sort of faithful compromise along the way. There had to be this idea of proximate justice. Uh, Hess says, has this, says this. So we still have soda fountains because that's how we in some ways make it financially. But at the same time, I would rather have somebody coming in and having an organic burger with that Coke rather than going to the other guys where they're going to have the Coke and the factory burger. Hess understands proximate justice. Now but not yet. Some healing's better than no healing. And so that's what we're doing in our workplace. We know that we can't get 100% to where we want to be, but we're faithful in trying and we're faithful in pushing back the brokenness of our situation, the brokenness of our industry to point to a more beautiful and hopeful future. I'm sure this sounds almost impossible. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure I sound a little naive. I run a small business in New York City. I bang my head against this stuff all day long. Uh, I cannot tell you how many people I've heard say, hey, the way you want to run your business won't work in New York City. You can't pay people what they need to make to live here and serve clients that are trying to do a little good in the world and therefore have smaller budgets and do things in a thoughtful way that sometimes don't have the, the, the success uh, metrics of other organizations and do that in one of the most demanding economies on the planet. It just won't work. And that's why I love it here. <laughs> because I think it can. <laughs> and I know it can because I know God's kingdom is stronger than, I know God's economy is stronger than the New York City economy, despite what you might read in the papers. Um, and here's what I think I think that if we can figure this out in New York City, then we will see us as believers here in TGC and other believers in the city will be leading a sort of revival in the workplace. And we'll see industries flipped on their head. And the very essence of how we operate will align more with beauty. And we will see people come to know Christ as an example of our work. And we will see work leading to healing, dignity, purpose, and meaning. And the kingdom of God will show up in our work just as it does in heaven. So with these ideas, I want to give you a couple things to think about this week. Three things. First, I want you to consider this question. Are you called or are you driven? Are you staying in your work for something that might happen one day that might pay for this other thing that also might happen one day? Or do you feel that God is using you and and you are partnering with him in his mission, in the Missio Dei? Are you called or are you driven? Second, I want you to begin to ask this question. What do God's norms direct you to believe about your industry? I don't think you'll solve it this week, but I think if you started asking it, you'll come up with some really uh, interesting ways to begin to formalize a theology of doing around 
your work. And my hope is that you'll wrestle with these questions for the rest of your life. And third, I ask that you pray for opportunities to make small pushes toward the redemptive edges of your workplace. As you're sitting in meetings and you're making decisions or you're painting or writing or whatever you're doing, I ask that you look for ways to push back on brokenness and allow the kingdom of God to enter in. And we do all of this so that we can create signposts to the kingdom for others and point to the beauty and point to total healing that we know that we'll have one day, even in our work and even in our labor. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask that you reflect on these things for a little bit, and Caleb's going to come up and do communion in a minute. Heavenly Father, we love you. We are incredibly grateful that you've given us meaning in our work, that we can partner with you, even in the most mundane of things, that what we're doing matters. And it matters because it matters to you, and it matters because it's part of your mission. We take great comfort in knowing that we don't need to operate in a mindset of fear or control. We take great comfort that, you, that those are your things to worry about, so that, that money is your concern, not ours. We take great comfort in knowing that in your kingdom there will one day be total healing and restoration and that brokenness will go away and that we'll all understand why we do what we do every day. Even though we might not see it now, we know that we'll see it then. Lord, we, we ask that you, here in New York City, in one of the most demanding economies on the planet, that you lift up our work and that you allow it to flourish and that you allow us to exercise our creational authority that we have in you to bring forth renewal in our institutions and our occupations and not just in our work but in the entirety of our vocations as sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.